0: And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow up episode for actually the last three episodes that you've heard. So, in episode number 17, we broke down and analyzed the testimony and report of Celestina Rossi, the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department blood spatter analyst expert. Then, in that week's Friday follow up, because I was gone, we heard some interviews you hadn't heard before. We heard from Marissa, Monica, Mrs. Essman from across the street, and Gerson Campos from the night that Jim and Sandy were found in their home. And then this week we had the Jim's Legacy episode in episode number 18, where we heard from some friends of Jim and Sandy's and one member of their Kingdom Hall that was not friends with them. So we have a lot of stuff to cover. Mike's kind of gone through and, and tried to sort out the relevant questions that were out of because we had a lot of questions, the ones that are going to be the most important for this episode. So with all that being said, let's go ahead and
1: get started. All right. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji
0: roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. Mike, before we get started with the listener questions, I do want to address one thing. As I was writing uh at episode 18, Jim's Legacy episode, it was occurring to me that I I was hoping that nobody heard me talking about, you know, the the what appears to me to be a straight up lie or a rumor with no basis in reality whatsoever about Jim and Sandy being in marriage counseling. My hope was that people were going to realize that the issue with what Colleen Barnett was saying, was she was saying that the marriage wasn't what everyone thinks it was. They had marriage problems and they were going to marriage counseling at the time of the murder. I, I didn't want anybody to think, and and based on the fan page, it looks like a few people kind of took it that way, that I had some I was trying to put forth some kind of a negative connotation onto couples going to counseling. And I, I want to make crystal clear just before we move forward with any more of this that. Uh, that's not my intention at all. I think that counseling is actually very healthy, both for couples and for an individual, for whatever reason. I've been to many counselors myself. And so I, I just wanted to make clear that the issue isn't that you know it destroys Jim's legacy if Jim and Sandy were going to see a counselor. That isn't it at all. It was the fact that, number one, this information was put out without any basis in reality. That it was, as, as Colleen put it, a third-party hearsay and that it simply was just not true. And also, she had put the spin on it that the reason she had cited it was to point out that the marriage wasn't what everyone thought it was, that they actually had problems and issues within their marriage. And I think that after hearing from the witnesses we heard from this week, I think that we can all agree, well, probably not all of us, but hopefully most of us can agree that really Jim and Sandy did have one of the very, very few and rare, what I would call a picture-perfect marriage. And so that, I just wanted to make that clear that I do not want there to be any kind of negative connotation from anyone, and certainly not coming from me, on counseling or marriage counseling. That wasn't the point at all.
1: Okay, from here we'll get into the questions. Our first one comes from Linnae. Linnae says, Okay, I'm totally not defending Colleen Barnett, because I do believe she was using the high-profile case to gain back some credibility in her mind. However, I have some concerns with how she is discussed on the page. Do you think another prosecutor will be willing to be interviewed on future cases after the thrashing Colleen has received? Yeah. So here's the thing with this. Every
0: situation is very different and very unique. As far as will another prosecutor be willing to come on because of the the negative feedback that Colleen has received, both from me and from a lot of listeners on our Facebook page, social media, kind of all over the place, I don't think any prosecutor is going to look at our show and say, Yep, I'm willing to go on there. I want to go on there and then and then have pause because Colleen has has had so much negative criticism after her appearance on the show. Because any any clear thinking prosecutor, anyone that is looking at what's going on objectively, Colleen Barnett did this to herself. And to be honest with you, I mean, my intention is to really try to lay off at this point. I think we've made our point and we've done what we've always done, no matter who it is. If you come on the show and you lie to people, you lie to the audience, and we catch you. And you get caught if we find evidence that proves that you're not telling the truth, then we're going to call you on it. That's the only reason that Barnett has has taken the, I don't know they call it thrashing or whatever they called it on, on, on that question. And a lot of it has been her behavior after the trial, you know. And and so my point is most prosecutors, to be honest, are not going to come on the show. It is not a smart thing for a prosecutor to come on the show, and especially the case is still in direct appeal. I mean, I was shocked, honestly, that Colleen did. I appreciated and respected the fact that she did, but that doesn't give her or anybody else a free pass if you're going to come on the show and then lie to try to bolster your case, especially then when we dig in and find out that these are just blatant lies. I mean, so, I mean, obviously we covered the red rope before, but, you know, the blood spatter testimony for her to not only in the closing arguments of the trial, but then in the interview with us, in her interviews with uh, recently 2020, or interviews with Dateline, and with the Deadly Women podcast, to keep putting forth this idea that the attack started in the chair, and then to say, my blood spatter analyst says that Sandy was in the chair, like that's just, any prosecutor can see, any person, lawyer, normal anybody can see, that if you behaved in that way, and these things are easily provable, and we found out, if you were listening closely to the episode about the blood spatter analysis, that it's not like this is just something that Rossi said and Barnett just missed it. They were actually, they they taped out a diagram on the floor of where the bed was, where the closet door was, where the closet was, and then they acted out how the blood got onto the chair. And Colleen was part of it. Colleen was literally playing the part of Jim in that recreation, that reconstruction of how the blood got there. So then for her to come on a podcast or on a, you know, in her interview with KHOU, anywhere she goes to say, my blood spatter analyst says the attack started in the chair. It's just, if you say stuff like that, you're going to get called on it. You know, there's been a lot of stuff, for those that are, aren't on social media, I'm not going to get into a lot of this, but I mean, there was stuff that went on last week before the uh, blood pattern analysis episode aired, where the expert, Chelsea Rossi was on Facebook, in a, in, in a Facebook group, Talking shit about me, which of course she was talking shit about me, but, but I mean, even, even kind of poking fun at Liz and things like that. And, and I put her on blast too. And I'm going to do that every time. If you want to be treated with respect and like a professional, then act in a respectable way and act like a professional. And there are people that maybe aren't happy with the fact that I'm putting them out on blast like that. I know there were people on, on Twitter that were, of course, in that group where all that was going on you know, who were on Twitter and Facebook that were going off about, you know, how could you do this to somebody and you shouldn't be putting this information out there to everyone. It's like, we can agree to disagree, but I 100% disagree with that. These people have, and meaning the prosecutor and the expert witnesses that testify at trial, they hold people's, literally hold people's lives in their hands. And they have so much power. And when you're in that position and you have that kind of power, To behave and act in that way is just unacceptable to me. And these are, they're not all, you know, Colleen Barnett nor Celestina Rossi. Neither of those are elected positions. But Colleen Barnett's boss, Kim Ogg, the actual district attorney in Harris County, is elected. She's the one that hired her. And every action that Colleen does is going to reflect and is reflecting back upon Kim Ogg. And I hope she's taking note of it. And everything that Celestina Rossi does is going right back to the elected office of the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department. In Montgomery County, there in Texas. And 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 they hold these positions of power. And so, yes, I want everyone to know what these people are doing. And if they continue to do it, I'll say this, because I know that they're listening. If you don't want I'm I'm willing to call a truce and stop beating up on you guys, and I'll ask you, my listeners, to to give, give Rossi and Barnett a break. Give them the opportunity to do the right thing. And that starts with simply. Stop going out and spreading false information. Stop lying and slandering the names of Liz Melgar, Jim Melgar, and Sandy Melgar. Just stick to the facts or stay off social media. There's nothing requiring you to do these interviews or to go on social media. But if you choose to, all I ask is to do it in a professional and respectful way. And you won't have any problems for me. And I, I know I went a long way off from... And I didn't have any intention of going on this tangent today, but off the question. But coming back to would another prosecutor come on, I think a prosecutor is either going to come on or they're not. They're, they're not going to make that decision based on what happened to Colleen as far as the negative criticism she's received. And and if that's there, they'll see why. A prosecutor is going to look and see, well, she went on the show when she lied to everybody and she got called on it. Of course, there was there was a lot of negativity that came with that. So I don't think many prosecutors will come on anyway. That's just because you know lawyers like that don't really deal with the media too much. And if they're going to, the only thing that they may take, in my opinion, from what's going on with Colleen is if I go on this show, then I need to make sure that I stick to the facts and be truthful and don't spread third-party hearsay rumors to hundreds of thousands of people without anything to back it up. Especially when you're talking about a podcast, that's goal is a crowdsourced investigation into the case to seek truth and justice. because guess what? We investigate. And
1: that's what we did. And you guys heard this week what the investigation yielded. Our next question comes from Des. Was any testing done by the CSI on the crime scene to show that blood was, quote, cleaned up, like luminol or a similar chemical? Yeah. So I know this was
0: addressed on a previous episode, but just to clarify again, yeah, there was a reactant agent used throughout the house and all the, the sink drains and the shower drains throughout the shower, around the tub, all over the place. And, and Carpenter... The crime scene investigator testified that there was, in fact, no evidence that there had been any cleanup done on the crime scene. In fact, uh, during cross examination, Max Seacrest asked him, he looked at photos of the sink, and this is pretty telling. So no blood showed up, right? So no blood reacts. But then, you know, maybe the thought is, well, if they cleaned it really, really well, then it wouldn't react. But you could see in the photo that there's lint and dust and dirt and hair and debris on the sink and around it, where the, so, so basically showing not only was there no blood there, in the areas that didn't react to the, uh, the luminol or reactant agent, but the area had not been cleaned. There were there was obvious signs that it
1: had not been cleaned. Richard says, how can Colleen Barnett say her blood spatter expert said the attack started in the chair when the blood spatter expert said that it didn't? Couldn't she have been referring to another blood spatter expert? I, don't, I know we just covered most of that in my little rant there a
0: minute ago, but no. And if she is referring to another blood spatter expert, then there's a big, 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 big problem because there was no other blood pattern analysis report or anything of that regard turned over to the defense and discovery. So if there was another blood pattern analysis done, and it wasn't favorable so it wasn't used, then that
1: would be a massive Brady violation. Stacy says, did the police or Barnett speak to any friends or members of the Melgar's Kingdom Hall during their investigation? Also, did they speak to any of Sandy's doctors? No, and and that's just... <laughs> One of the things that's so frustrating
0: with all this is they didn't investigate anything, and it's—I'll give you an example of this. But something, something really rubbed me the wrong way that Barnett said on 2020 in her interview. She said that the the family and the defense has never been able to provide an explanation as to why the dining room chair was in the bedroom. And this—I'm going somewhere with this to that question. So I heard that, and and my blood just boiled. It's like, what do you mean? They were never able to. You literally never interviewed any of them. You heard the entirety of the interviews with the Melgar family last week in the follow-up episode. That night, just asking them what went on, kind of walked through how they found them, and then very obviously you could hear they were already deciding that Sandy must have been the killer, and they're trying to, to figure out if, if the whole Kane thing is an act. But that was it they never did an investigative interview after they had the facts meaning once they go through and process the crime scene and now there's this question about the chair they never interview Sandy again and ask her why is the chair there they never interview Liz and ask her why is the chair there they never interview the rest of the family none of them and then goes on 2020 and says the defense and the and you know the family and the defense can't give a reason, cannot explain why the chair's there. And, th- and that is, was in the light of recorded after, at least here on our podcast, we've made very clear. It's all over the internet. It's all over the podcast. You can see the chair marks. The families told us the chair was there for the dogs to get on. You can see the blanket with the dog hairs on it. So looping that back into this question, no, they didn't. That's how unprepared the state went into this trial. I mean, if you th- if you think about this, well, what has happened here? They went into this trial without interviewing any of their friends, any of their family, Sandy herself, the family that found them there that night, anybody from the Kingdom Hall. They didn't interview anyone. And, and Barnett, in the 2020 interview, said she thought of the motive for the crime on the fly in the middle of the trial. So there, there was no preparation done for this. There was no, you know, in, in Sandy's interview and her interrogation, which we have, I think it's our episode two of season six, but it's also on our YouTube channel if you want to watch the video of it. Karazal's telling her, we're going to go to the, you know, scorched earth. We're going to we're gonna tur- leave no stone unturned, and we're going to talk to everyone you know and, and find everything out about you and everything about your marriage and blah, 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 blah. But they didn't do any of that. So, no, they didn't. Uh, and, then, and the doctors. Colleen pulled some medical reports from some visits. That Sandy had, but to my knowledge, she didn't actually speak to any of the doctors. She didn't sub- subpoena any of the doctors. She didn't interview any of them or file any court paperwork allowing them to release. To, to, you know, she obviously filed the paperwork to get the documents released, but she didn't actually take the time to go speak to them. It's it's like she built her case literally on the fly during the trial, and then and she sold it in closing arguments with evidence that wasn't evidence. I mean, she she brings in a blood spatter expert who testifies that Jim was never on the chair, the blood hit the chair from when Jim was inside the closet, which I agree with. As I said, I think Rossi's actual analysis of the blood pattern, everything she did report on, not the stuff she left out, was accurate. She is good at her job. But then she spins up what she thinks the motive should be, and puts this theory together in her head, and then just sells that to the jury in closing arguments, and none of it was supported by the actual evidence. And and this is a perfect example of it. No, she didn't talk to any of their
1: friends. She didn't talk to anybody from the Kingdom Hall. She didn't talk to any of the doctors. None of that. Christine's got a question, and you alluded to it just a minute ago. She says, let's talk about how Colleen Barnett admitted to making up the motive for Sandy to kill Jim during the trial on the 2020 episode. That for sure was a shocking moment for me. To further clarify, this seems like a glaring instance of incompetence and misconduct on her part. Are there any legal actions that might get her removed from this case during any appeals or a new trial? Like you said,
0: we already kind of hit on that, so I'm not going to beat it to death the fact that she created motive out of thin air during the uh, the trial. and you know, and I, To be honest with you, I think that statement on 2020 is going to come back and bite her right in the ass, because I haven't been able to read the appellate brief yet that was filed. I think it was filed last week, but it's got to go through some some steps before it becomes available for the general public to be able to read it. But I would assume that the fact that Colleen Barnett brought in the defendant's religion into the trial is going to be brought up as, and I, I believe, quite frankly, it's prosecutorial misconduct to bring that in as, as motive to bring in their religion. It's a constitutional violation. And then for her to say that she thought it up during the trial while one, I think she said while one of the witnesses was interviewing or was testifying, which that would be Rocio that we heard from on the, on the podcast here last week, that's just another nail in the coffin if they go that route. And if the appellate court does think that argument is valid, other than just some nasty Twitter comments, some of the stuff she's saying very well could be played back for her in a court hearing during this appeals process. And I hope it is, to be honest with you, because I mean, if she's if she wants to go on the record and say it, then then she should be accountable for it. Uh, but as far as the appeal, though, she doesn't have... My understanding was what, from what she explained to us when she was on the show is that, that in Harris County, the original prosecutor doesn't handle the appeal. So it goes into like, I'm, I'm guessing it must be like an appellate division. It would be a different prosecutor that will be handling the appeal. So it's not like in Baltimore in Maryland where the same prosecutor just keeps following the case, you know, with Adnan's case, you know, on and on and on, all the way up to the
1: Maryland Supreme Court. Wendy says, on the 2020 episode, Colleen Barnett said that she checked all of Sandy's medical records and there were no seizures reported. It was a broad sweeping statement, and I don't recall the exact wording, but that was the bottom line. Can this be clarified, verified, or rebutted, or was her seizure medication just doing its job most of the time? Yeah, well, I mean, we
0: know that Sandy and and from what we've heard from people on the show that most people that have epilepsy and have seizures, number one, don't report them because they're just something to deal with. You know, it happens all the time. You don't need to go to the ER every time that you suffer from a seizure. You know how to handle it. Also, it's oftentimes not necessarily reported because if they're reporting seizures to a doctor, they lose their driver's license for six months. So I know that some people will do that. And then uh, as far as, you know, her pulling the medical records. I think she pulled the medical records for one of Sandy's doctors, but she also, Sandy had multiple doctors. There were neurologists, there, were, there was all several different doctors. So I don't know if she pulled all of them. We did get, as I've mentioned, a, a big production of uh, documents from Harris County, but most of the medical stuff is going to be highly redacted. I haven't, I've, I've spent most of this week trying to get through all of it. I haven't come across any of the doctor's stuff from any of the doctors. But I do know that there's the doctor's report from when she went to the doctor after the attack. And it's noted in there that she told her doctor that she had a seizure, that she had a seizure the night that this happened. So, I mean, right there is a contradiction. So, so Barnett says in trial, I believe, again, in her closing arguments, if my memory serves, that if we look at all the doctors, notes, she hasn't. She's, none of the doctors' records show that she told the doctor that she had had a seizure for like a year or something like that when one of the pieces of evidence that went in was the doctor's note right there that had been admitted into evidence that clearly
1: said that she told him that she had a seizure on the night of the murder. Megan says, in Monica Melgar's interview, she said it was Sandy that invited the relatives over for dinner. My understanding is that Jim had invited them. Please clarify if we know for sure who really invited the Melgars over for dinner. Yeah, so we, we know for sure that it was Jim. Um, Monica was the youngest
0: at the time, and I think that's what she thought happened, that it was Sandy that set it up. But it was set up with Herman and with Marissa, who both in detail have described the conversations with Jim about them coming over. So there's there's no question that Jim is the one that made the arrangements for the the dinner on Sunday. It wasn't Sandy.
1: Vesna says, what is your opinion of the quality of how the interviews were conducted? The ones you played on last Friday's episode. Terrible so you guys i mean not just for me but we've
0: heard um some experts on the show come on and explain proper interrogation or interview techniques especially when you're just trying to do a kind of a fact finding interview so so like a witness statement is what what, what these were supposed to be you ask open ended questions and you let them talk i was so frustrated i mean extremely frustrated when i was listening to those interviews because every time they're trying to explain something they get cut off. The office, and you could tell that that the the blinders and the tunnel vision were already on at that point. They were after Sandy, and that's how they 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 don't know the answer to questions that they should know the answer to. Here's an example. It was I think it was Monica said that she went to go get or it might have been Marissa. I think it was Monica went to go get a glass of water for Sandy, and she's trying to explain. She's trying to do what what a witness is supposed to do, which is retrace your steps. Let's help piece this thing together. And she, I think she gets interrupted twice. She's trying to say she went to get the water, she brought it back, and she was never able to get it to Sandy. And he keeps interrupting her and talking about the damn cane, whether or not they had seen Sandy with a cane, and what they should have asked, because, of course, there's a big glass of water on the nightstand where the TV belonged that could be, it's not, because we know that that's what that water is, but the police didn't know that. That could be a critical piece of evidence, a full glass of water sitting right there on the table, they never even asked about it because they didn't care. So no, I think the interviews were terrible. They were clearly one-sided. They were trying to get some dirt on Sandy. That's all they wanted to do. They were interrupting. Then they didn't get
1: the full picture. They didn't get the full story because they weren't interested in the actual story. Kirsten says, how do we reconcile the neighbor's account of no one going into the garage, but yet the front door opens before Herman gets back from the backyard? Yeah, I think that's just, you
0: know, we all know that the most unreliable Evidence out there would be eyewitness eyewitness accounts of, of anything, especially when you're not you, when you don't realize you're supposed to be watching. And so, I mean, we have everybody else's account in, in the family that uh, the garage door was open when we got there. We have neighbors that said that they saw the garage. I think she said she saw the garage door open earlier in the day. Everyone knew the garage door was open, and you know Herman describes how he got in through the garage door. The family says he went through the garage to to go to the front door. So the fact that the, that the neighbor across the street didn't see him when he went into the garage is not surprising. Also, keep in mind, uh, Jim's truck was parked in the garage right in front of that garage door. So they, might, they just might not have seen him. But certainly they weren't, you know, scoping out
1: and watching every move the family made. We've got a couple questions about the blood spatter cast off. Abby says, in the blood pattern analysis episode, you suggested the killer was left handed as to the wounds to Jim's front are on his right. Could the killer just have stood at an angle, right shoulder to right shoulder, instead? And then along those lines, Danette says, I'm not sure I buy that the attacker was left-handed. In my mind, if two people are facing each other, a right-handed person would stab diagonally to the left, striking the victim's right side, meaning the blood spatter would go up and to the left on the wall behind the victim's right shoulder when they pull the knife back out, right? Okay, so these are good questions, and after reading uh,
0: Abby's, I saw I didn't see that other one. Uh, before we recorded. Uh, but Abby Scott's question, I kind of went through and reviewed the evidence again and looked at it. And no, I think I'm, I'm even stronger leaning towards, uh, after looking at these other theories, other possibilities, this has to be someone's left hand. And it, it's very difficult for me to describe on audio, but I'll do my best here. So, and the best way for you guys to really understand this is to, if you can have somebody, somebody do this with you, lean back against a wall, so they're, they're laying flat in the position Jim was in. which So not sitting against the wall. If you go from sitting against the wall, then move your, your rear end maybe two feet away, so you're kind of slouched against it, so your shoulders may be a foot or so off the ground. These two cast-off patterns go from Jim's right shoulder area up into the left. And so regarding the second question, she said blood spatter. I think there's a little confusion, and maybe he's not understanding what cast-off pattern is. So the cast-off pattern is a very specific type of blood pattern and it's not so this isn't as the knife plunges into the body and then you know it splashes blood out. Cast-off is after the knife is pulled out, it is covered in blood and you see cast-off when the knife is then recoiled for the next blow. So you got to so if you can imagine you've got this bloody knife and as you pull it back, it flings blood onto the wall after you've done the stabbing. So if you're if you're trying to act this out you got a person in front of you slouched against the wall and you're face to face with them and so on your left their right the, the cast up pattern goes from their right shoulder up into the left and so first i thought of abby's point so maybe it's not a left-handed killer maybe rather basically i think she's saying they're staggered so the the person on top is off to their left the victim's right so they're kind of their right arms are kind of aligned with each other and so they would be stabbing on the on Jim's right side of his body with their right hand. This is getting so so confusing. I'm sorry for this, but hopefully, some of you are following. The problem is, so if you look at the angle that you would recoil the knife from that side, so you're using your right hand to now stab off to your right, further off to your right to reach out and hit Jim on the left. His right, your left. So you're reaching out to the right of your body with your right arm, and you strike when you pull that knife back up. That blood spatter is going to go probably straight up his middle, maybe up into the right when you're off to the side. You know, it won't be off the edge of his shoulder like it was on the other side, but because of that angle, the only way to get it the blood pattern, the cast off pattern the way it is, if you are staggered off to the side of him stabbing with your right, is if you went at a very strange angle. So, kind of stabbed down and, and into him from his right side, from your left, and then brought the knife back up across your body like across your your chin area up uh, for those either are on video you can see what I'm talking about so they went up like this and then back down it could maybe cause those but then we have to look at the totality of the evidence and Jim's defensive wounds you know he's got that big cut on his right hand but his left hand has all sorts of which would be the other side of him he has lots of bruising on on his wrists and arms so he's he's blocking something. With his left hand way over there, so if the killer's off to his right, staggered side to side with him, he wouldn't have those defensive wounds. And also, put yourself in the mindset of the offender, you're trying to control this victim, right? So, you control them by getting on top of them. You don't control them by being beside them on the ground, leave, giving them full full range of motion with their body. So, you're slashing across with the one limb that you would have that, that could reach them as your right arm in this position, you're, you're slashing at them. I mean, they, they could just, he could just got up and run out the closet. You know, his legs are tied or hopped out of the closet, crawled out of the closet. So the fact that he is where he is and all of the other blunt force injuries, no, I, I, in my opinion, and I, I'm, of course, not an expert, and I'll, I'll yield to the experts, but I agree with Rossi on this, that the killer was face-to-face with Jim when this happened. And and then that that ties into, you know, other expert Jim Clemente, Everybody else that's looked at this, that in order to control this victim, they're on top of them. So in my opinion, we can rule out that it was someone off to the side and reaching over. You could, it's possible to make the pattern, but it doesn't fit with all the rest of the evidence. And then as far as you know, someone with the right hand crossing over. So now let's go back to a position where, uh, and if you're acting this out, your victim's still slouched against the wall. And you are face-to-face. You're right on top of them. You're straddling them. You're over the top. And you're taking your right hand and crossing it over the body, and so hitting with your right hand hitting Jim on the right side of his body. okay? So you're, you're kind of crossing over, so it be your left, his right. If that's the case, first of all, the the entrance angles of the wounds don't add up for that. They don't work. They're, none of them are at that extreme of an angle. And of course, it's a dynamic scene, so you know that's questionable. But if you do that, then your recoil. Is absolutely because you're crossed way across your body, is absolutely going to go back up into your right to make the next stab. Because these are two sequential stabs. You got one, so you got stab, cast off, stab, cast off. And of course, likely another stab too. The cast off is going to go completely the other direction. So the only way that I could see, and, and you look at it, and if you look at the crime scene photos that we put up on our website for episode 17, you'll see what I'm talking about. We have uh the wall there, without Jim's body on it, and you can see it would be down into the left the two cast off patterns that go up and to the left, and see if you can figure out any way other than someone stabbing Jim in the right side of his chest face to face with their left hand and recoiling it back. If you can come up with any other way to make those two cast off patterns I'm all ears but but my opinion is this person I can't say they were left handed but I feel very confident in saying that I believe they were stabbing with their left hand.
1: Alexis says, The jury foreman has implied publicly that he held it against Sandy that she didn't testify, which is a no-no. Does Sandy's defense team have any grounds to use that in their appeal? And to add to that, Charlotte wants to know, why didn't Sandy testify? Well, to
0: answer the first question, the jury foreman, Tom, in his interview with KHOU, and it's hard to say with the 2020 because, you know, the edit, he was only on there for a short bit. They edited a lot of it out. But in the KHOU interview, you know, he used the, the, the old expression, no talkie, no walkie. Uh, and it was, it was appalling for me to hear. It's your constitutional right not to testify. It is also not your burden to prove your innocence. It is 100% constitutionally only the prosecution or the state's burden to prove your guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So the, the the fact that he even said the words, no walkie, no talkie, are certainly upsetting. Uh, and that's referring to the fact that, you know, if you don't testify in your defense, you're not going to walk. You're, you're going to get, you're going to convict it. But he was careful to say, with that being said, we had uh, very, very clear jury instructions that we were not to consider the fact that she didn't testify in our deliberations. Uh, and he says that they didn't. So, and there's, and of course, there's no way to speak to the state of mind of the jurors. So. Uh, it just is what it is. As far as why didn't Sandy testify, it's just like any other case, defendants don't testify. It is an absolute rarity for a defendant in a criminal trial to testify in their own defense. Nothing good comes of it. Remember, it's not their burden to prove their innocence. It's not. It is the prosecution's burden. And most defense attorneys, I would say almost all defense attorneys, I'll say this, all defense attorneys, most of the time will not put a defendant on the stand. They're the person on trial. So on your side, the jury is not going to believe anything they say because, you know, if anybody has a motive to lie, it's the person that's facing going to prison for the rest of their life. So you're not going to get any positive outcome from it unless they just happen to be somebody that you know is just very powerful and would be appealing to a jury and they have the the type of personality that can hand up, stand up to cross-examination, which is is very difficult. So It just doesn't happen. Nobody does that.
1: Jessica says, I'd like to know if Max Seacrest objected at all regarding Colleen Barnett asking witnesses about things not within their realm of expertise. For example, asking Rossi about staging the crime scene. Do we know why this wasn't challenged even though she did it repeatedly? Seacrest did challenge some of those things regarding
0: the staging of the crime scene. Stuff with Rossi, if you read the transcript, she actually was trained in that in, in the study of staged crime scenes. And so he actually acknowledges that I think he says, like, so certainly you are qualified to speak on that topic because she was she is qualified to speak on it. I mean, it's junk science if there ever was junk science, as far as I'm concerned, because so this is this is a study, a certification that a law enforcement officer can get to learn how to identify if a crime scene is staged. Well, the only way you can do that is if you know if every single criminal robs a place in the same way or stages scenes in the same way. And and the example here is, of course, the drawers, right? Now, when there's, a, when there's a home invasion, they pull drawers out and they dump them over and throw them on and flip mattresses over. Or they open the drawer and see there's nothing in there they want and they just leave it. My point is, it's never the same. Depends on the age, the maturity, what they're looking for, the state of mind, whether someone would do the things that you would look for in a stage crime scene or not a non-stage crime scene. But you know, when it came to the knots, to me, I think I think it was, uh, it just seemed like strategy to Mac, rather than objecting to the knot thing. He uses an opportunity to point out that Rossi didn't have expertise in it because it had already been talked about in direct examination. Personally, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I don't know the rules. I I was a little frustrated by that because, in my opinion, based on my very cursory knowledge of the law, the minute she asked the computer forensics expert or uh, the blood pattern analysis expert to look and examine this knot, I, I would have immediately, if that is okay, and again, I don't know the the, the exact ins and outs of the law, but I, I think it would have been a better strategy for me personally, just looking at it, to say, to object immediately and say, you can't ask a computer forensics expert about knot tying, or a blood pattern analysis expert about knot tying, that's not their field of expertise, but you know, he took it a different route, and there may be more in some of the trial transcripts that we haven't gotten into yet that explain that. So, you know, he could have tried objecting to that with a previous witness and was overruled, and then and then had to shift his strategy because at some point too, you got to remember how you look in front of the jury. So, so let's say as an example, and again, I'm not saying this because I I haven't been through all of the transcripts yet. We're going subject by subject and piece by piece, person by person, but say she she gives one of the cops the knots and says you know does it could someone tie these knots themselves and he says i object it's not a field of expertise and the judge says overruled if you know and he says it and he objects again he makes a big deal and then and he gets overruled again and then the next expert comes or the next witness she does it again he objects again gets overruled again now all of a sudden you're looking to the jury like you're afraid of people looking at the knots so they're it, it, on his face it may not seem like the right move but there's a lot of you know, they're they're playing chess throughout both sides. They're playing chess throughout the whole trial. So we just don't know.
1: Kristen says, I'm just wondering why Seacrest continued to let this third party hearsay about marriage counseling continue. Did he never challenge Barnett to make her prove that her statement was correct? No. So the the whole third party hearsay thing that
0: came after the trial, to my knowledge, I haven't seen that yet, but of course hearsay like that would never be allowed. Even just first party hearsay wouldn't be allowed into court like that. So it's, it's my understanding that that's a rumor that Barnett spread after the trial was over when she went on her, her kind of PR campaign that she's been on since the conviction.
1: Kristen says, could we get more clarification about an alarm system? Was it set regularly? In my experience, the alarm company would have a record of when it was set, turned off, if the alarm was activated and then stopped, etc. Is there a record of the Melgar's coming home and setting an alarm?
0: No, so it, it definitely was not set. When uh, Herman and Maria and family came by the next day and in Sandy's interrogation, she said that they have an alarm, but they don't usually set it. So it, is, it seems like it was not set that night.
1: Jessica says, is there a document out there alleging that Sandy was caught buying illegal drugs? Is this document part of the case files from the county? <laughs> I, well,
0: I don't know yet. I haven't, I haven't come across it yet. I, it may be in there somewhere. But but yes, Sandy was uh, busted for for buying illegal drugs. And I only know about it because I was told about it by the family when I first started looking in the case. It was something that I think when they were doing the forensic analysis of Sandy's cell phone, the, the incriminating thing, the only incriminating thing they found on her phone was in some messenger app with a friend how she had tried to procure some medical marijuana to try to see if it helped with her illness. Or it wasn't. Of course, she didn't have... I don't even know if medical marijuana is legal in Texas. I don't think it is. But that's what it was. So that's Sandy did try to score some weed at some point uh, to try to see if it would help with her illness. That's what I was told. I don't know exactly. I haven't come across that in the the documents yet, but that I believe that came from her phone and that was that was her trying to get some get some marijuana to see if it, it could help medicinally for herself.
1: Amber wants to know Will we be hearing from Sandy on this podcast. Also, can we have an update on the oral arguments from Adnan Syed's case?
0: Uh, hoping to hear from Sandy, uh, I was actually, before I left, uh, for the UK, which, by the way, the UK tour was awesome. All you UK listeners, thank you so much for coming out. And Kaylin Lindsay of JustKillinTime.org, thank you guys for having me over. You guys were amazing hosts. We traveled the whole country, Becky and I did, with, uh, with Kayla and Lindsay, and they were awesome, and the events were awesome. Anyway, getting back to this. Before I left, I was hoping to interview Sandy for an upcoming episode. Uh, I had written her a letter through JPay. To tell her to call me. That's the way we usually do it. I'll tell her to call me at a specific time so I can be set up and ready to record. And she never called and she still hasn't called. And then Liz just told me yesterday when we were talking that uh, her mom had called her and they were chatting. And she told her that, that apparently the JPay system and the unit she's in has been down for like weeks. So so if you've sent JPay letters to Sandy over the last few weeks, haven't heard back, yeah, it's just because it's not working. She's not getting them yet, or, or at least she wasn't as of a couple days ago. And as far as the oral arguments uh with the non ads case, I was not able to live stream them to hear it myself. Uh, but I did text with Rabia afterwards and asked her how it went, and she said she was she was very confident. She thought that it went really, really well. The lawyer that was representing a non just did a great job in the arguments, but you know, it's it's just a waiting game now. And and if you want a full play-by-play breakdown, go download the undisclosed podcast. That's that's Robbia Susan and Collins, for those of you that don't know. And they did a bonus episode just on this, I haven't had a chance to listen to that yet either. But I know that Colin and Susan always do an amazing job of breaking things down, and then I'm sure they have both written blog posts about it too. So they are going to be a way better source on that than I am. Courtney says, "Is there any update on Jesse Eldridge?" Nothing specific. I, I did actually just before we recorded. I just opened my mail and I just got a letter and a Christmas card from Jesse. He's uh, seems to be doing okay, but I, I know he's frustrated. So you know, if anybody going to our website for the address or through JPay can drop a line to Jesse, write him a letter. He's just, remember, we, we we stopped his case to move on. It's been over to our season five or four and five. You know, it, it's been over a year since we've been, you know, let's go. We've got the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas working on his case, the Innocence Project of Texas, doing some DNA testing. And then it's just, things are slow and it's, and it's completely out of, Certainly, my hands. Most definitely, Jesse's hands. And so it's it's just such a waiting game. And then the the unity's in. They they they've been on lockdown for weeks. We haven't been able to talk on the phone. He seemed in high spirits. Like I said, he he sent me a Christmas card, and he said, you know, I think it said on there maybe next year will be my year. He did tell me when we spoke on the phone shortly before I left for the UK to again thank all of you because he does have a lot of people that still write him and and wanted me to let you know that he really appreciates everything that you guys do, even those letters. Um, They really keep his spirits up, when he's, especially when he's in there on lockdown, but he's frustrated. We're all frustrated that nothing seems to be happening right now, but but he seems to be doing okay, too.
1: This next one's from Kim Aites. She says, No question. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of the love Sandy and Jim shared. What a love story. I so enjoyed hearing other people's perspective of their love story, and I pray that hearing this put a smile on Liz's face and in her heart, because that's exactly what it did for me. Thank you for this episode.
0: Well, that was nice. So that is, for those who don't realize that, that is Ed Eight's wife. So yeah, no question, right? She just appreciated the episode, and she got the nod for the follow-up because
1: she's Ed's wife. <laughs> That's right. We love you, Kim. All right, Lawrence says, what are your thoughts on the whole Kathleen Zellner situation after the 2020 episode? Okay, so I'm not sure what the Kathleen Zellner situation is.
0: I'll let you know, you guys know what he's referring to, so... In the wake of the twenty twenty episode, in the wake of some social media I wanna say social media wars that were going on, but when I was sharing some of the things that were being said behind the scenes by the experts and and Barnett, and it just it just turned into an absolute shitstorm. People were really furious over the behavior of Colleen and Rossi. And during that shitstorm and I I do wanna I do wanna say this, I wanna point this out that uh, Chelsea and Rossi did, did publicly apologize to both me and Liz for some of the comments she'd made on Facebook. So I do want to put that out there. And, you know, that's 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 good enough for me. Let's all move on from there. But in re- kind of response to all that was going on, Colleen Barnett took to Twitter and what to me it was perceived to me as a jab at me. She had said something, the lines of, you know, that. I think she said, like, I come in peace, and if you guys want to show me who actually did this, I'll be happy to try the real killer, but so far nothing. And then she said, if you really want to find out who the real killer is, what does she call her? You should get a real exoneration person like Kathleen Zelmer to do it. And she tagged her on Twitter, so which was obviously her saying, Bob, you suck if you want somebody to really do this. And, you know, I'll take it. I've been pretty hard on her. She can tell me I suck all she wants to. And I, that's just how I perceived it. But but anyway, she had tagged Kathleen Zellner in that tweet. And if that was just intended to be a smart-ass jab at me, it kind of backfired. Maybe it was genuine. I want, to, I really wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to Colleen and say that she's kind of had enough. And it was genuine. In any case, whatever it was, Kathleen Zellner tweeted back. And she said, oh, look, here's the prosecutor with a conscience who says she wants to actually investigate who the real killer was. And said, quote... Have Sandra Jean Melgar call me. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of createdintandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, truthandjusticepod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.